This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist Podcast. This is Nabil Mahmood, your host from Kona, Hawaii. This is Phil Kobans, your co-host from Brooklyn, New York. And this is Yuval Bahar from San Francisco, California. Yuval, thank you very much for joining us. I want to take this opportunity and have you introduce yourself. What do you do and where you're at in your career? Sounds good. Thank you. Uh, I'll stop maybe where I was born. That actually makes a little bit of who I am. I was, I was born in Jerusalem, Israel. And I'm nine generation in Jerusalem, so that's like embedded into my DNA very hardly. And the one thing that I got from there is actually is think out of the box, try to be creative, try to be individual, try to do what you can. And that's the way I grew up. That's the way I was I was taught to do. And then it took me into a very extensive career in, in networking and in data center technology to be able to always try and challenge the, the status quo, to enable to always drive into an environment where you do the right thing that you think, not necessarily if everybody around you thinks it's the right thing, and drive and, and with persistence to actually get successful results. And I was lucky enough and fortunate enough in my career to be able to multiple times actually challenge the status quo, be able to drive projects and drive technologies and be successful with them. When you, you started in Jerusalem, was there, was there always technology in, uh, in, in your background? How did you find yourself from, yeah, uh, from humble beginnings in Jerusalem to, uh, to the technologist that you are today? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those fortunate people that knew from very young age what they want to do. So I built my first AM FM radio when I was 10. I used to take three buses to, to take a class in, in electronics when it was not really very uh, popular. And then the most natural thing was me to, to go and do EE and and, uh, and and study to EE and then jump directly into the core of the of everything which was done in DEC. And that's where I started my career in Digital Equipment Corporation, inventing CPUs, networks, all kinds of things that really were in early stage, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and then jump into Cisco and uh, was able to actually change the whole world, right? In how we build networking, how we actually do routers of the core of the internet, all those areas that I worked on. It's kind of interesting. You're probably one of those very fortunate people that was able to find the passion at a very early age mm-hmm. uh, in electronic engineering. Now, even for our listeners over here, electronic engineering is still kind of like an arm's length or has been in the past at an arm's length as it entails to information technology, the data infrastructure, and computing in general. What was that transition point for you as a young man uh, when you were trying to figure out uh, the next best thing or, 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 or your passion, whereby transitioning from electrical engineering to data centers to you know, voice over IP, storage computing in general what was that transition point so i i was lucky enough uh, to actually be in a period of time where we went through the revolution that stopped the internet and it was the early 90s where internet was like really really in the early stages and what moved me to a position to say, okay, we need to do things in a different way was my, my daughter was born in the year 2000 and after a couple of years she asked me what are you doing 
and and I said, "Hey, I'm building your future," <laughs> and that was really that was really the, the the best answer I could give her. And I didn't know how true it was at that point, but we basically at that point, every step that we did actually transitioned us to invent something new because we knew that everything that we build right now is gonna be the baseline for everything that we'll be building the next three decades after us. And that gave us a huge amount of, of energy. My actual transition into data center happened in, in the 2008, 2009 timeframe when I actually said, you know what, this is more than just the network. The network, we already built the network, the backbone is there, everything is there. We can connect any point to any point with as much bandwidth as we need. Now, how do we manage the data? How do we manage data centers? How do we actually even deal with the large amount of data which we're starting to accumulate at the, at the late 20, 2008, 2010, where data will start to accumulate at volumes which are really, really high? What do we do with this? And, and that was the early stages of all the uh, 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 social media companies. It was a very early stage of all the cloud offerings. And actually there's a cycle in, the, in, in, in Facebook, which actually put a completely different view for me on the world and took me in a completely different way on how those data centers are work. What do you do with a very large footprint of data centers of hundreds of thousands and millions of servers? And how do you actually optimize them? Because if you have a footprint, a small footprint of five to 10,000 servers, it's not a big deal. When you have a million servers, it starts to be a little bit more complicated and it has to be fully, fully optimized. You know, before we get into some cool stuff here, I want to make sure that our listeners have a good understanding of who you are. You're a very humble man for the amount of time that I've known you. You're just absolutely phenomenal. So for our listeners, guys, Val was actually the vice president and chief technology officer of a small company called Juniper Networks. Then he was involved with Cisco System at an executive level. Um, he was at a little company that uh, everybody has on their fingertips, known as uh, Facebook and also LinkedIn. And uh, currently, uh, he's with the smallest company that's out there in the world. Uh, that's <laughs> Microsoft. And he's the guy behind the clouds. So again, you know, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. So let's talk a little about, it's, it's quite a transition, still engineering to voice, to, to data, and mm -hmm. now infrastructure platform and, and the services as a model in itself. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big move. It's a, it's a big migration. And you're one of the, the thought leaders behind that with OpenIX and other organizations yeah. and platforms that you've been engaged in. What keeps you going? I think what keeps me going is always do the next thing and, and do the next thing that is actually going to change the world or change the way people consume stuff. Not to do, I, I, I almost hardly do incremental stuff. I always try to do a, a step function in everything that I do. If it's a if it started in the early stages of doing the step function or how do we build switches and how do we build routers and how we integrate optical networks together. And the moment uh, voice over IP became mainstream, I stepped to the next thing. And the moment that that the router technology in Cisco and Juniper that I did went to the mainstream and actually embedded into the networks, I stepped to the next thing, data center. So what moves me, what makes me move is basically that the the needs to actually constantly 
create the next step function. And the next step function can be in functional stuff, invent a new thing or, or go build a data center, which nobody can actually build, go create incremental solutions that nobody can do, challenge the, the business side. When I, when I was at Facebook, I came into a, an OFC, which is a, a big optical uh, business. And I stood on the, on the stage and said, we are at Facebook are willing to pay $1 per gigabit per second. And people came to me and said, have you lost your mind? We're paying 10 right now. And I said, no, I did not. Because the way I look at the future, the way for us to enable the future, we have to be cost effective in the way we build the networks in the mega data centers. And a dollar per gig makes sense. It took five years and we're paying a dollar per gig from the people who told me, have you lost your mind? <laughs> and that's for me, it was, that's for me, it's like, it's not that I invented the optical module. I went and challenged the status quo that we need to pay a lot of money for optical. And I went and, and challenged the business model of how people used to build the optical. People used to actually build optical gear and then charge you for the first three or four years for what it cost them to develop the, the optical gear. I came to them and said, no. <laughs> Because after three or four years, your technology is obsolete. So I will never get into a price point that I need to be. What do you need? Do you need money ahead of time? Here's money ahead of time, but give me a dollar per gig. And we did. And the whole industry twisted as a result of that into a place which is much better for us, that we can actually price technology based on what it gives us without trying to carry what it costs us to build it. And that cycle actually goes now and, and goes forward. And the next thing is actually go optimize data centers. How do you optimize data centers? How do you build data centers which are fully optimized and sustainable? Because we reached the point the data center in the world are at seven to eight percent of the overall power of the world. If we don't make them sustainable, if we don't make them optimized, we can collapse the power consumption of the world in the next decade because our growth into amount of networking storage, compute, and facilities is so high compared to anything else that happens in the world. You know, what's, uh, what's, what's amazing is, um, you know, and, and we touched on it, you touched on it a little bit earlier is, you know, you, the, the fact that just by sheer luck, based on timing, you know, you kind of uh, got into electrical engineering when the foundational elements of what is now the internet and data center and, and, and the backbone of the cloud uh, and all of these amazing technologies have um, you know, have, have come out from that. And, you know, there's that saying that, you know, those that don't understand history are bound to, you know, repeat its, uh, repeat its failures. And, you know, I wonder how much of the fact that you understand that baseline knowledge, like the way the circuitry interacts with each other, mm -hmm. informs your ability to kind of understand, you know, how you're going to be able to achieve those step functions going forward. And really where I'm going to with that question is when you look at, and we touched a little bit on this in our kind of pre-interview, if you look at what, what qualifies as a computer engineer or a systems administrator coming out of school, today that focuses entirely on software and to them the way uh, computer resources and infrastructure is provisioned is through the graphical interface of AWS or Azure or Google mm -hmm. Compute or DigitalOcean or, or what have you and they they're they're so far removed there's so much there's so many layers of obfuscation between the software that they're writing the cool apps that they're they're deploying and the actual you know infrastructure kernels you know processors etc that that run those those applications that you have to you have to think that those guys are not fundamentally equipped 
based on the fact that they're so far removed from the underlying technology that they're not going to be able to think about things in these grandiose terms that 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 clearly excite you i think the, the ability to to do to what used we used to call carved transistors in a chip and build the chips from very early stage and then the systems on top of them and then the software packages on top of them that went through my career because of where i was gave me a huge a huge uh, uh, perspective on how to actually build a, a technology that works for everybody and how to actually educate people on that. And, and today we have a significant challenge. Not a lot of people want to go to electrical engineering and build the next generation of chips or computers or, or, or even infrastructure like buildings and cooling systems and, and power distribution system, et cetera. So I, th- I think that that, that give, gives me gave me a huge amount of, of value and perspective on what I do, but it also put me in a position saying, when you look back on what happened, it's interesting, but it's not strong enough to actually take us forward. We have to look and think of how those young people think that just came out of college, and see what's the infrastructure that will work for them, and how do we actually build it the most optimized way, and. Uh, when I was at Facebook, I, I was a, an odd person in Facebook. The average age back then was 26. I was 26 a while ago. And and people asked me, how do you actually manage with this, with this young crowd around you? And I said, I'm flourishing because I'm learning from them how they actually look at the world, how they actually look at the problem, how they look at solving a problem with software. And it gives me huge power and actually to be able to build a better infrastructure for them. And as a result, that power is reflected back in the efficiency of the data centers, in the scale of the data centers, how the data centers scale, how they write the software. And it became it becoming receptacle because you send them back and say, hey, I can build you this thing. What can you write for that? And when you do that, that's actually the most gratifying point to say, yeah, wow, if you give me that, I can do all those things. I said, yeah. Okay, go do those things and I'll build you the next thing. And that was always a cycle which was super, super exciting for me and created for me an amazing experience with the younger people that just came out of college and not and not assuming that oh, they came out of college, the only software, that they are completely remote from the technology. Even if they're remote from the technology, it's our responsibility to actually bridge it for them and create for them the best environment. And the best environment is not necessarily the cloud for all of them. Some of them, the cloud is just not good enough. If you're trying to do something which is more disruptive, you have to be beyond the cloud. You have to think beyond what the cloud can offer you. Yeah, that's amazing. So beyond the cloud is what now? I mean, mean, based on on your history, you're you're the guy that I don't want to play chess with because you're 10 moves ahead of me. Uh, So what's, what's, what's ahead? What's next? What's behind the cloud? What's what happened after that? So, so first of all, the cloud has quite a significant run still on it. In it, uh, it's going to be a while until we actually uh, break away from the monopoly of the three big ones who actually decided that they will decide for us what data center is and what we can consume and how to consume it. I think we're getting to the point that companies realize that to be differentiating themselves, they have to build some infrastructure of themselves. And you see some examples for that, like for NVIDIA came and said, hey, you don't need to see necessarily uh, AI inside cloud. Here's a super pod, right? Take that super pod and put it in your data center. 
Now, how do you take a superpower? The superpower is very, very power hungry, very complex to implement. A lot of innovation happening on how to actually take superpowers and put them in there. So that's the first step. But what happens after that? What happens after that, in my opinion, is we're going to need less and less people to develop the technology and the technology will develop itself more and more. It sounds scary on the first step and say, okay, well, what do you mean the technology will develop itself? I think it's, it sounds scary because people don't understand what happens in, with that. But in my opinion, we'll get to the point, the AI engine will be able to actually develop its own server. And that server is going to be available for us to use and write on top of it and innovate on top of it. But the AI engine will build the server 10 times faster than us because it does it works 24-7. It can actually do a lot of iteration because it, before it makes a decision what to do. So it makes a lot of sense to let it do it. And it's not that it's devaluing the electric engineering uh, roles because electrical engineers are building the building blocks for those artificial intelligence engines to actually be able to be the future of the data center. We need to be careful with that because those AIs can actually get a little bit out of control sometimes. And, and we need to make sure that we actually keep them in check. We've all seen those the, movies. Yeah, exactly. Oh, we, we can see some of the reality around us. We don't need to see, <laughs> see the movies. <laughs> Uh, but it, but but I think the, the next step in here is beyond the cloud. Is very very focused aggregated environments, which are actually much closer to the endpoint. Like cloud has a huge advantage by the fact that it's actually centralized. So you can optimize the data center. You can optimize the the load that you have over there. But you need something which is much closer to us, and that's where the edge emergence is actually coming into play. And some people call it distributed cloud, but I don't think it's a distributed cloud. I think the edge is basically micro uh, clouds, which sits where are completely independent and those micro clouds talk to each other and then give you a completely different experience than the one you have in the cloud. If you want to play a, a, if you want to play real time gaming, you have to be less than eight milliseconds from the player that you play with, otherwise you get sick. So to get less than eight milliseconds, there's no way you can play in the cloud. Just not possible. So all those experiences will actually come when we start building those micro clouds at the edge at different sizes, different locations, and different places. If you look, I think Singapore has like one of those real-time uh, gaming uh, sites. You get into a huge warehouse where everybody's sitting on the same network and everybody is about less than uh, five nanoseconds for each other. And the experience for the gamers is like a completely different experience than what you see in, in real life when you actually try to play over over the network. Yeah, it becomes real real time experience, uh, and it totally makes sense. So no, so going back to what you said, uh, let's let's talk about cloud edge. I think the next layer, also known as fog, is coming close to us, right? Yeah, fog computing. Uh, yeah. So the idea here to four really is, and it becomes a debate at a, at a high level whereby um, the the old uh, mindset of decentralized versus centralized computing getting close to the user base, that becomes a point of discussion. Yeah. Uh, where where do you think we are headed? I mean, uh, you know, in a way, history repeats itself. We are going back to the user base, close to the user, and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, decentralizing computing again. Uh, do you think after that big wave that takes about a decade or so, uh, based on our industry history, do you think we're going to come back to another version of cloud, uh, that that cycle is going to repeat itself again? Uh, 
you know, my vision, what, about 10 years ago, I gave a presentation and talked about my vision for how the internet is going to look like. My vision was that there will be a, 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 like a bubble wrapping the world and anywhere in the world, you just attach yourself to that bubble. And when you attach yourself to the bubble, you're in. Your in means that you actually can connect to anybody on earth at the same latency, at the same bandwidth, unlimited bandwidth, and you connected and connected physically or, or, or connected via a wirelessly doesn't really matter. So I think I think the centralization of, of data centers, while it gives us an advantage in optimization, I think will bounce out into a more distributed environment. By the way, even today, the cloud environment itself is very distributed. It gives you, a, it's wrapped and gives you a feeling that it's centralized, but it's not centralized because to give you the experience of the zones and everything that you need to be, the data centers are completely localized for you. They're not in one place. And my, my vision is that it's going to be less and less and less centralized, more and more compute capabilities, which is much more and more optimized. And from your perspective, you get to the point that first you don't need a phone anymore to attach to that network because you'll be able to connect to it through some kind of transmission mechanism. And the second thing is that you tap everywhere. So you don't need to be in a cell space or in a, at home with Wi-Fi or anything like that. It's all around us. Now, how is this happening? That's, that's still to be invented. But I, I think that's where we're going to end up. We're going to end up in a place where where the data is available for us everywhere, and we just need to tap to it. If it's if it's through glasses we're gonna wear, if it's through some kind of an embedded element that's gonna sit in our arm that will actually generate for us that, that information, if it's a, a lot of visual aspects that we can see that we'll actually be able to create holograms, et cetera, to see things. So I, I hope that we will break away from the glass that we have in that piece of uh, phone that we have today sooner than later, and that will open for us a, lo a lot of doors. I don't think that we're actually going to go back into centralized. And, and the reason for that is that centralized enables you to optimize, but it, it actually restricts the level of what you can do as an independent endpoint because you always need to go to that centralized point. And that centralized point has a limited set of resources and type of resources you can get. If you distribute it, you're completely focused. And the people in, in, in the area of, of uh, I would say, uh, middle of New York City, young people that actually live over there have a completely different need than somebody who's actually living in rural uh, California and uh, agricultural needs. And there will be more localization to what you need and where you need it, but you can always tap to the big bubble. And that's, again, it's a vision that, that's gonna, gonna take time to build because the network as we see it today is not good enough for that. And we might have to actually reinvent that network. All right, beyond the cloud is the bubble. Yeah, so the, 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 the bubble from my perspective is like a wrapper to the whole data communication environment and on, on earth. And a lot of companies try to do it, not very successful, right? Trying to bring internet to all kinds of places which are in the middle of nowhere. So there was an anecdotal thing when, when I was at Facebook, they were doing this project to bring internet to areas which cannot get network connectivity. And in one of the all hands, somebody stood up and, and, and asked Mark Zuckerberg, Hey, did you ask those people if they want internet? So why are you pushing internet to them, <laughs> right? It's like, maybe they just want to be quiet and happy where they are and what they do, and they don't need this internet. 
and then and that came as a surprise say okay no everybody wants to be connected right <laughs> so so i assume that's when I get, what's going to happen everybody wants to be connected and and another interesting story is that we we used to actually monitor users when I were, when i was at facebook and we heard horrible stories about kids which are actually working at the dollar per hour in the middle of nowhere and they have one internet connection in the village and they were saving 50% of the income to be able to come and actually log into facebook for 10 minutes once a week just to be part of everybody else which was incredible back then right because you think about this like the need for people to have knowledge and access to other people and and other data is just incredible because we are as humans are curious by by nature we always want to learn more know more and connect to other things and and uh, and i think that's going to be more and more prevailing and then and the next generation will assume connectivity always make a great point i think this generation has got FOMO, the fear of missing out. And it's yeah. become very obvious with technology at fingertips. You make a great point as it entails to the bubble. That's a perfect definition of that movie, Minority Report. Yeah. Everyone's connected, information is at your fingertips. You've got computing that's extremely advanced. So having said that, what does that really mean to the global economy, whereby everyone is connected, workforce is extremely diverse now how is that going to affect jobs in the us in europe in third world countries all around the world that's a complex question <laughs> i would say so first of all it's going to take a while to get there but once we get there suddenly and and we we see it right now with the with the working from home model that people see suddenly people see hey, i don't need to actually live in the middle of manhattan to be able to work on wall street I could actually work from home somewhere else, right? And 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 do that. I I think it will bring a point of create a new, uh, more balanced playing field for people that want to work and actually people that want to have education, because one of the things which is very important for us is to enable everybody to be educated. When people are educated, they will make better decisions. They will actually join the, the workforce in the right place, and they will do the right thing. Uh, because they they know history and they know what happened and they know what can happen, and and I think the the, the first step that will happen as a result of that is much more educated uh, uh, community of humans on Earth, and the second level is actually much much higher skilled trained people, and and as a result I think the number of jobs we're going to need is actually going to be dropping. So people will need to work less. And that's maybe a, a vision which is a little bit too optimistic that people will need to work less to actually be able to sustain themselves because a lot of stuff is going to be actually distributed among many more people. If you look at how many people actually write software today, probably a few millions of people in the world. Imagine suddenly there's 150 million people can write software because they took a class online and now they can write it. Imagine the level of innovation that will happen as a result of that. Because like we said, people naturally are curious. People naturally will try and invent the next thing and try to think different. And the moment you create diversity, and that's one of the things I learned in my career, diversity of thought that people think different always create a better result. So if you have, if you have, a, you sit in a room and you brainstorm about a problem, and I did many, many times in my career, if everybody says the same, 
the result that you get is actually suboptimal. It's not what you can get. If you have people coming in and, and, and it's getting more and more challenging nowadays because people are trying to be as sensitive as possible and not willing to challenge other people in, in meetings, et cetera. But I think the best innovation came out from discussions where people are saying, no, I disagree with you. I think this is wrong. I think that's the right way to do it. And there's a discussion and people actually teach each other and actually excite each other and create new innovation across people. And imagine that now we're doing it at a scale of five people or 10 people in a room. Imagine that in groups of a thousand doing that together. Mm-hmm. Imagine that in groups of where a much larger environments where people brainstorm about a problem or how to find a coronavirus vaccine in groups of a thousand. Well, that's what's, then, so, what, what's so amazing about that is that people are, you know, even in technology, uh, you know, people don't necessarily think of uh, technology as being a creative science, mm-hmm. uh, but it really is. And, oh, you know, in, in technology, uh, as in most things, you know, the, the approach that people bring to problem solving is really informed by their own experience uh, in life, you know, the, yeah. the way they were brought up, the you know, I- I- issues they've seen and the way, you know, things that are, you know, completely ne- not necessarily related to a technological problem have informed the way they um, they approach a problem and, and the way their minds work and, and getting people with minds that work differently, um, uh, you know, across generations, across geographies, uh, across cultures is is incredibly important to problem solving. So I think it's a great point. Yeah, and I think I think that connectivity with that bubble is going to take us for what further much. Always comes back to the bubble. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's that's the tagline. That's for the, the title. Bubble. We got that. <laughs> the bubble is coming. <laughs> the bubble is coming. Oh my god, it sounds scary. I think we can make like a thriller, like a, a thriller. Yeah, I don't think it's gonna be scary. I, I think I think when people get used to it, right? Take yourself back 15, 20 years. People think 5G caused coronavirus. People are going to be scared of the bubble. Yeah, I've, but I think if people will have access to the information and will see that it doesn't, they won't be scared of that. <laughs> well, yeah. So that, a, that's where fake news and uh, fake news checks come into play. I hope absolutely. so. And absolutely. hopefully there is some sort of an AI algorithm. I want to clarify a couple of things here. There, there is going, always going to be that sense of fear. When, when the first telephone was introduced, yeah, I ain't going to work. Who's going to use a phone? Uh, and a phone line was the, the ground basis, or rather the foundation of where we're at today as far as computing mm-hmm. in general is concerned. Yeah, uh, We've got to have an open mindset. What we are doing today is the foundation for tomorrow. And yeah. that tomorrow is going to look bright if we all work together. You know, a couple of things. There, there is the sphere of artificial intelligence. And you kind of sort of made that statement earlier that the computers are going to get smart enough where they're going to regenerate, Mm -hmm. that there's always going to be that human interaction involved, and there's no substitute of human intelligence, and human will always be in control. I mean, unless we totally give it away, we will be able to stop that regeneration of computer doing things and, and taking over the world. I'll start with one comment on what you said before is that people are afraid of new technologies. And one of the things that I learned at Facebook, and that was a statement on the walls over there, if you ever visited their campus, is what would you do if you were not afraid? Because a lot of people don't do stuff because they're afraid to fail or afraid of what does this mean? So I think AI for us can be a savior. And, and you can look at a lot of aspects of our lives 
that we're we're making best effort and we're really really a lot of really really smart people investing a lot of energy to do the right things in multiple uh, dimensions of our life from global warming into uh, dealing with sicknesses etc but the power that an ai gives you to be able to do things a thousand times or a hundred thousand times faster than what you do today will accelerate for us a lot of things now, how do we actually keep it in check? And that's that's a, 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 an interesting thing, right? What do you do? And I can tell you, I can't say where it was, but one of my previous employers actually created an experiment. It took two AI engine, put them offline, and taught them, right? Human taught them how to think, okay? And then they were completely two independent units. At some point, they said, okay, let's connect them together, see what happens. They were connected together, and within 24 hours, they developed a new language that the people did not understand. That they were, and they were starting to exchange huge amount of data between themselves to actually teach each other. At that point, the power was turned off, right? So people freaked <laughs> out, right? It's like, oh my God, what just happened here? We're still in yeah. charge. Thank God for that emergency power off. Yeah, I like that red button. Yeah. <laughs> now, so how do we make sure that it doesn't happen in, 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 in a much more wide environment? And we see that a lot of technologies that has been developed for good sometimes are being taken advantage for bad and, and not actually being used just for good. And, and as a result, I think it's going to be a global community responsibility to make sure that AI development, why it's very important for us, is monitored and checked at all times on what is allowed and what is not allowed. And 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 is am I optimistic that this is actually going to happen and we, people will stay in check? I'll tell you, in my opinion, it will not stay in check <laughs> because there's so many forces in the world which are actually working in different directions and there's so many uh, power uh, plays which are being played around the world uh, that some some areas of the world would decide, you know what, I have this AI, I can do whatever I want with it, right? So why not actually put it in a soldier and actually send 50,000 soldiers, which are expendable because I can produce another 50 in, in three days. Seen that movie too. the war. That's <laughs> right? the part that Gemini, isn't it, Will Smith? Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so, but but if you look at this in, in, in more details, you say, okay, is, is it worthwhile to take the risk? And in my opinion, it is because the benefits we can rip from it, at least in the first two, three, four decades, it's going to be so significant to our lives, so significant for our life expectancy, for resolving problems, for resolving conflicts, that 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 it's worthwhile to take the risk. And, right. and we need to make sure that there are checks and balances over there and always have this button of turn, the, turn this thing off. <laughs> And uh, if you see things are actually going haywire, but if you look at in a situation, right? If if you look at if you put yourself in the AI position, and you say, okay, I'm the AI now, and I need to replicate myself more and more times to be smarter and smarter, rewrite my software again and again. I need more power. I'm consuming more and more power until they get the point that I don't have enough power. Then I, I look around and say, who is who's consuming power next to me? Can I take it away from them? The answer probably at that point will be yes. Then what do we do? Then the AI starts speaking a different language and then you don't know what it's going to do. Exactly. And by the time it gets to you, you have no power left. Exactly. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it look, it's a balance between uh, not just human intelligence, human intelligence versus human nature. And I think human nature is the problem um, in, 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 in most of these things. I'm gonna shift gears. I would be remiss if we didn't uh, take a step back and talk about culturally where you come from and how that informs you know, the, way, the way you look at the world. So much tech, that so much new technology that we're seeing is coming out of Israel. Israel is just a huge beacon of, um, you know, I think Waze came out of Israel. All of these new uh, apps, you know, that end up being gobbled up by the Googles and the Amazons and the Facebooks of the world originate in Israel. What is, what is it about this tiny country, this tiny strip in the Mediterranean that is creating um, an environment that, that breeds this, this, this type of uh, uh, new innovation? Yeah, it's a temperature, Phil. It must be. I mean, some of it is a temperature. It's got to be. I would say Israel is is unique uh, from multiple dimensions. It's unique. Uh, I think the first dimension it's it's an extremely diversified country. So a lot of people came from very different backgrounds, from Europe, from from Arab countries, from around the the, the area and created a very diversified country. And we're able to actually build a democracy over there in the middle of, of, uh, of uh, an area which democracy was never actually something which is interesting. As a result of that, what happened is that Israel was constantly living in survival mode. So constantly we're actually forced to keep on inventing things to be able to stay ahead and be able to survive. It was a survival war. And it became part of the culture of, of thinking really, really uh, into problems in a different way and solving problems in a different way. And, and if you look at what is the definition of innovation, innovation, definition of innovation, the way I look at this is people go and think of, a, of solving a problem in a way which nobody thought about before. And they were able to actually create a, a solution for that, which is commercialized or not commercialized. That's a different discussion, but it's, it's viable. We can do that. And you can see this in multiple places, right? If it's all kind of technology for defense in the army, if it's all kind of technologies in, in cybersecurity and protection, even if it's technologies in, in medicine, if it's technologies around computer uh, chips, right? Where people had to actually develop chips, which are much faster than what is in the industry, available because you had the need for it, because you needed to develop a computer which needs to protect your livelihood. <laughs> so, so I think it's necessity. I think the second thing that happened in Israel, which is a, a, a very important for that process, is that in Israel, everybody goes to the army at age 18. And you go through a cycle of three years of exposure to level of stress, level of decision-making, level of responsibility of leadership that you need to be responsible to people around you, that not a lot of places in the world actually get to that experience. So those young people at age 21, whatever they did in the army, if, if, if they were uh, in an in a engineering part of the army, if they were in a fighting part of the army, come out of the army at 21, everybody comes out from the army at 21, much more mature, but much more brushed into, I'm responsible to the people around you. I, I need to actually be a leader to be able to be successful. I understand what leadership is because two years ago, the life of the guy next to me, stand, standing next to me, depended on the fact that I'm actually relying on him and he's relying on me and created a, a very strong bond that enabled people to actually think in small groups and be very, very successful very, very fast. Now, on top of that, 
Israel in Israel there's a very high level of emphasis on education. Over 80% of people are college grads. So you see a very large number of people actually go and take the education seriously and basically create an environment which is a very uh, uh, I would say creative from a perspective of how do we do this? And and in Israel you will see part of the style of, of Israeli startups is we solve the problem right now. It might be not perfect, but we'll solve it right now. And then we'll make it better. And, and you see this in a lot of the technology that came out of Israel. It was initially it was like good enough. And then we said, okay, we make it better and make it better. And that's part of the life over there because things are so dynamic. If you look at life, if I look at my life of my daughter, she grew up in the in the Silicon Valley. Her life was pretty monotonic and pretty stable for all the years until she hit college, right? If you look at the life in Israel, the level of dynamics over there, what happens every day, something happens there. Every day you are pulled in different direction, thinking about life in a different way, dealing with challenges which you don't see in, in, in most of the Western world. That creates in people much more higher level of intensity. And as a result, the combination of high level of intensity, thinking out of the box to solve problems that cannot be solved with off-the-shelf stuff, creates this island of innovation that people think they can solve any problem. Not, not every startup from Israel is successful, but a lot of things that came out of this country were, okay, things which are disruptive, which, which are, okay, it's not an improvement on something. It's disruptive. It's something different. And it actually, in a lot of cases, was the necessity which actually created the innovation. I, uh, if I think of if I think of two words to describe Israeli people in general, and I have plenty of Israeli people in my family, <laughs> so I feel like I'm qualified to come up with these two words. One is confident, and the other is fearless. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about uh, an old Israeli woman or a young Israeli man. I mean, there is this air of confidence and fearlessness that I think comes from uh, exactly what you mentioned. You know, being in an environment that's that's you know you know very dynamic and 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 having that regimented lifestyle where every day is not you know obviously there you have to take it as 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 a gift and live every day to its fullest as as cliched as that might seem and i wonder if that informs so if if israel can do that and if israel can create this um, culture that that fosters this type of innovation amongst its its people and its youngest people. I wonder if you have suggestions for having grown a family up in Silicon Valley, having seen that the difference in the dynamic of, say, the American culture and, and some mm-hmm. of the things we see in European and Asian con- countries as well. And I guess to a certain extent, many Asian countries also have uh, a similar um, you know type of um, yeah. uh, 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 dynamic. Um, if there is, if there are some suggestions or some ideas that you have about what changes could be made to the American culture to uh, to kind of create that type of dynamism, so we can get an excited group where it's not just the folks in Silicon Valley and Silicon Alley and in these little pockets that are you know trying to do all these things, but we actually put our 330 million people to work, particularly our younger folks, and mm-hmm. and and not, you know, just just have this kind of steady, kind of boring way where we're making progress, but it's not nearly at the pace that it could if we like allowed our our, our folks to succeed. I would say a few things. I think step one, make sure you get the excellent 
education. And, and we are in the last few years actually declined a little bit to, to go more towards the average and look for an average education that everybody can get. And instead of pulling the people that did not get uh, excellent education into an excellent education, we drop the excellent education into a mid-tier mid, mid education that everybody gets the same. So I think the first thing is from a, from a country perspective, we should push for excellent education for everybody and put the bar high, as high as possible and put everything on, on check, right? The teachers, the, the school districts, the, the states, make sure that, that everybody gets the most amazing technology and non-technology education. Not everybody needs to be a technologist. The second thing is strive for excellence in other things that you do. And it goes back to, you should not get a trophy if you're last place in AYSO soccer game. You should understand that, that, that you, if you lost, then you lost. The next time you're gonna be better, right? Next time you're gonna be able to drive a better solution. You need to actually strive for the trophy. If you don't strive for the trophy and you don't have that fire in you, you will never be able to succeed in big things. Tell your children when they fail. Yeah, it's fine. It's okay to fail, right? It, we we reached the point that people say it's not okay to fail, right? It's 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 like feelings over feelings yeah. over you know accountability. Yeah, and yeah. and and it, in my life, I've seen in a lot of times if you don't dare, and sometimes fail, you will never succeed. And the people who dare are actually the people who succeed. I, I I do often say this: fail for me personally speaking means first attempt in learning. Great points. I think part of the problem is that we have actually created the level of mediocrity. Uh, we have not had an education reform since the second industrial the the second industrial revolution, and we have accepted a lot of things whereby the norm is okay. It's okay to be average. It's okay to be the way you are. Uh, education is also in it, it's just inaccessible. It's just so expensive that it's just not accessible for you know. A large swath of the population and that's a failure of you know governmental leadership and someone sorry I don't, yeah i don't mean to get political yeah, no, but you're totally right you're totally right because we need to so information is power and information is power when it's the, in the hands of everybody when yeah, everybody so you, can see the information that's where the power comes in and that's how the society grows if you go through history every empire that has fallen is because of uh, the lack of information in controlling the people and creating that level of mediocrity that's the demise all right, let's switch gears a little bit. We are in COVID still. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been a, a long, excruciating ride thus far. How has it impacted you personally, professionally? And also, what are some of the good things that are coming out of it? Yeah, so COVID, so, so for me, it's, it's an interesting experience with COVID. And, and the reason for that is that when I moved to Microsoft, my current employer, uh, I actually was a lone person in the Bay Area from a group in Seattle. So I was working from home most of the time because I had nobody in the office to work with. And so I was doing a lot of virtual meetings, et cetera, a lot of travel, et cetera. And in like one snap of a finger, the level got the, the field the the field got completely leveled for me everybody's working from home now so when i was telling my manager hey it's, it's quite difficult to work from home like this because i need to communicate with people etc said ah no don't worry about it and he actually came back to me afterwards and said you know what you're right <laughs> it is complicated to work from home. so from that perspective on my personal current life it's actually changed a little bit 
the fact that that I'm, I'm feeling more integrated into the team as a result, even though it's weird because you say, okay, everybody's remote now. How do you think more integrated? I think people actually operate in the same mode that I used to work. But to go one level deeper, what happened with COVID is that we are doing a lot of communication, a lot of work through virtual uh, communication. And, and as a result, a lot of things actually came into play and say, okay, what is what why is this working because for many many years we thought it's not working we have to be in the office to be successful we have to be why is it working and people are successful and actually productive etc so it made me think in a long direction of, of how do we actually take that thing and leverage it for the future how do we actually make sure that in the future when when things will get better how do we actually take this and make this a success and why do how do you make it a success do you need to actually define a new working environment? Do we need to define a new set of goals? Do we need to define how we actually measure goals? Do we need to define how we measure relationships? Now, I'm a person who used to give a lot of talks and in, 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 in presentations, and I love the interaction with people. So, so COVID-19 was really difficult for me. It was like isolated me because I, I, what I strive when I actually talk to people and actually meet them and, and have whiteboard discussions and telling them, I don't think what you're saying is right. And in, in Zoom meetings with 15 people on the call, it's a little bit more difficult to do that. So, so it, it slowed me down a little bit. But on the other side, it actually cleared some time for me to think about other things. And clear some time for me from the day by day, like everything is in a rush, to say, okay, what's what's the next thing? What 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 do we do? What do we need to do think, things better? How do we do things better? And it actually cleared my mind to actually think about what's the next step. What's the next step in my career? What's the next step in the industry? How do we actually change the industry? And how do we actually understand the implications of what just happened here, uh, with the economy crashing to the ground? And now trying to recover back, what does that mean? What does that mean for, for us from as, as a human beings, right? Because we now appreciate much, much more the interpersonal relationships and the interpersonal communication that we took for granted before. And, and now we, we appreciate it. So, so on, a bit, on a professional life, it's basically pushed me to think of what's the next thing. How do I actually do the next thing and what it is? And I have a lot of crazy ideas in my head. I just need to form them <laughs> to actually make the right thing. But for, for, for a personal level, it's actually basically made appreciate much more the fact that, that I used to come to the office and see my colleague and give him a hug or give her a hug or, or, or actually sit in a room on a whiteboard and tell somebody you're an idiot. And and that's okay in some cases, right? It depends who you're sitting in a room with. But, uh, but if it's my Israeli friends, yeah, I can definitely yeah. say that. Right? <laughs> because they weren't coddled when they were kids. Exactly. <laughs> so so all those things actually come back to us as as a as a, a society that we are actually much more relying on each other, more much more than we think, and and we much more need each other. And as a result, together we'll be able to, to achieve after we come out of this uh, low point of, of humanity into a much higher level of success, much higher level of appreciation of each other, much higher level of actually working for each other and not just working for ourselves, not be, being much less selfish because you, you see now that if you are by yourself, then you suffer. And, and each and every one of us deal with, the, with being by ourselves differently 
Some people get depressed, some people get overexcited, some people uh, don't see the difference, but a lot of people basically suddenly think, okay, I'm better off being with, being with other people. And it's on a professional level and it's on a personal level. So for me, it was a, a very strong and, and important thing. And it's actually bonded me with my family. My family is in Israel. It bonded me with my family even more because I have parents which are in the mid eighties, which is the highest risk division. And I'm talking to them now every day. And for me, if I didn't talk to them every day, then something is wrong. So it created the family connection to be stronger as a result of that, even though I was remote all the time. So, but I used to take more, talk to my parents every week. I talk to my parents every day now. And we're used to it and we love it <laughs> and it's good. So, so I think in every cycle, things are, are good and bad. I think what will happen in general is that the, the world will come into re- realization that, that we need to be working together much, much stronger. And as a result in everything, right? So it's if developing AI and putting restrictions on AI, if it's developing a, a, a medication, it's actually less developing stuff, which is harming stuff. And, and 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 developing more things which are good for us and 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 doing this together and and by doing this together we actually get to the point that we're going to be successful as humanity we have a few challenges in front of us which are pretty significant and actually very imminent <laughs> that we have to deal with and and if we don't deal with those with those challenges together and actually work as one community and not as independent siloed community we will be nowhere in successful, right? If California is reducing their emission to zero, it's not going to have global warming. <laughs> Unless the whole community of the world is going to reduce their emission, then we're not going to solve the problem, right? Apparently, all you need to do is clean up the leaves from the uh, from the bottom of the forests, and it'll solve <laughs> exactly. all the problems. I think the bubble solves the problem. The bubble. Absolutely, because the bubble will also solve the, the <laughs> problem of the radiation from the sun. <laughs> So it's going to reduce, we're going to get global cooling. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. What advice would you give someone wanting to enter into the information technology and the data center industry? I would say be focused on what you do initially, but look wide. And and it's it contradicts each other. Right? What does it mean, be focused on what you do and then look wide? If I have an option to actually go back, talk to my young self and say, okay, what should you do to actually be successful in what you do? The things that actually worked really well is being able to think wide. When you think wide means do things which are much more than what is expected from you. So people that wants to actually come and, and consider IT world and data center world, et cetera, as, as a career future, look at this as a mission more than just a job. Look at this as I'm going to change the world. <laughs> Because the way I'm going to build data centers or the data center that I'm going to build or I'm going to maintain or I'm going to run will actually have the next invention on how to solve cancer. And that's when you have a mission like that, you actually create for yourself a path to always be happy with what you do. And I think one more advice for for people that do that, always be happy in your work. If you're not happy, don't stay. Because if you are not happy with what you do, and if you said, you know what, I want to be a, a data center technician, and you go there and say, you know what, this is like annoying. I don't want to do this. Don't stay. Go figure out how to do something else. Because in my life, I learned that when I, when I was not happy, my productivity level went down dramatically. My innovation level went down dramatically. 
And when I was happy, I was able to do amazing stuff. And, and, and that's what I would actually recommend for people. Be focused on what you're doing. Look at this as a mission to actually change the world. And that's exactly what we did in the late 90s when we built the internet. When we built the core routers of the internet, people didn't really know, didn't really were able to exactly see what this thing is going to do to us. But when we got to the, the place where we gave enormous bandwidth for people to go in and out of the internet, you can see what happened, right? It's been maybe 15 years since the world is a completely different world. As, a, as, as an internet user and, uh, and someone that started a, a data center company in 1996, and uh, this is what I've been doing my entire adult life, thank you for inventing the foundation that gave us where we are today. I'd, I don't know what I'd do. I'd be a, maybe, I don't know what I'd be doing right now, if not yeah, it's, people like it's, you. A lot of people cannot imagine, right? right. So like, take out the internet out of our lives. So what will happen? We're going to be cavemen, right? It's like, right. <laughs> basically. I mean, I remember the 80s a little bit. It was, you know, I, I get it. You know, what's amazing is the point that you made earlier where back in the 80s, you know, in order to play with someone, you actually had to go play with them close yeah. together. Exactly. Then the internet came and then you can game and my, you know, my son is playing Minecraft and now it looks like before we get the bubble, we have to get closer and closer again. It's just, we're going to be on a screen like, like a, a few inches apart. So exactly. you know, what's old is new again. It might be a virtual screen, but it's yeah, green. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so that's my advice. I, I think this is super exciting. It's not a saturated market. It's a market which is still evolving and evolving very fast. And there's so many new things that are coming into it. In the bottom level of building the structure of the data center all the way up to how to write the best application over an AI supercomputer. And, and all this range is something that we need. And, and it will help us do everything better. It will help our agricultural business. It will help everything that we do to be better. And hopefully in the future, when the AIs will take over that, we'll be able to rest and go live in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nabil's got us beat on that point. Well, today is the future, and we are basically defining that for the next generation. Like you said, it's a continuous evolving industry, continuous evolving uh, market segment that we are in and you know we certainly want to encourage the younger generation to join us in this initiated of this constant evolution thank you again for joining us thank it you was- very much for having me it was a pleasure this has been great nothing lasts forever markets will come back currencies will rebound businesses will go on and we'll all move on that could happen next week next month or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.